You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Mike Piper, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. You know what feels good? Making money. Getting a raise. Getting a bonus, moving up to the next tier of net worth, adding another zero. It all felt so good to me, or at least for the first 40 or so years of life. But then, then I realized I had enough. Enough money to not really need to make another cent. All I had to do was live off the money that I had already accumulated. All I had to do was spend. Uh Uh-oh. Here was the catch. While spending money felt fun for the moment, it also felt fearful and anxiety-provoking. It turns out that enough might have just as much to do with mindset as it does to account balances, and that accumulating is more fun than decumulating, much more fun than spending. And thus, some find themselves in an enviable position. What do we do when we realize that we have more than we will ever need? Mike Piper is the author of several books, as well as a popular blog, ObliviousInvestor.com. His writing has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and MarketWatch. Mike is also the creator of the Open Social Security Calculator, which has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere. His most recent book is titled More Than Enough, A Brief Guide to the Questions That Arise After Realizing That You Have More Than You Need. Mike Piper, welcome to Earn and Invest. Listen, I want to start with a doozy here. Can you ever have too much money? (laughs) That's a great question. You can have more than you can usefully use. And there's certainly always new questions that come up as the amount of dollars involved goes up. And in some cases, for some people, that creates additional stress and problems or anxiety, certainly. I was about to say, am I like different than other people? Because I found like accumulating was really in a sense, the easier part. And what I have a harder time is figuring out what to do now. Yeah, that's very normal. I see that all the time. I think to some extent, it just has to do with personality types, right? People who are very forward-looking are people who usually save at a relatively high rate relative to other people. And that behavior from that feeling of being, you know, anxious about the future 
it makes sense. It works well. You save, 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 and that's a, a good thing. But then when suddenly your life is in a different situation, you know, financially you're in a different set of circumstances, but you're still that same person. You still have that anxiety about the future. And so uh, it's a challenge to spend. A lot of people find that. They find that it's a challenge to spend because they still have that anxiety, even though that anxiety is perhaps based on, you know, the way their life was many years ago. You know, now there's no actual economic reason for there to be, you know, anxiety or fear, but it's still there because they're still the same person who they were. All of this precludes this idea that we actually know what enough is, especially when it comes to money. Different people have definitions, but for the book specifically, what do you consider to be enough or how do we know what enough money really looks like? Sure. That's a tricky question. There's obviously a whole subcategory, subfield of retirement planning to answer that question. You know, how much money do you need in order to retire? And the reason it's so hard is not only because of the economic uncertainty, what investment returns will we get? What changes will there be to tax law and so on? But just there's the fact that one household situation is very different from another's. And if one person is retiring at 56 and another person is retiring at 68, that's very different. You've got fewer years of retirement to pay for. And if you're retiring at 68 again, then you've got, if you want, you could have social security begin right away. So, you know, you don't have to spend as much from the portfolio. And so there's just a huge list of personal differences from one household to another that make it hard to give the rules of thumb. And so you'll see the rule of thumb, obviously, the 4% rule that says that if spending 4% from your portfolio every year would be enough to live on, then you probably have enough. As rules of thumb go, that's pretty decent. But again, it varies a lot from one household to another. I think an important, very important point is that the younger you are, the less you should be spending from your portfolio per year, just for the simple reason that you need it to last for a longer period of time. So this idea of 4% or withdrawing 4% inflation adjusted each year from your invested assets makes a lot of sense, right? If you're going to retire at the age of 65 or traditional retirement age, but if you're 30 or 40, you might start looking at a lower number. Let me ask you this. I mean, at the outset, we're really talking about what we're doing with our money But is it a mistake to only think of enough as a monetary issue? Because again, I think I ran up against that too. Also realizing, okay, the money is there, but what does enough really look like? Is it just a money issue? Is there more to it? Well, there's obviously more to it. There's, you know, enough in all of the different parts of our lives that make us happy. The book itself, and as a CPA, the part that I'm more qualified to speak to is is the money part of it. But, you know, there's enough social interaction, enough meaning from work that you're doing, enough autonomy in your life, all the different things that make people happy. You know, there's enough in each of those areas is is critical. As a CPA and as a writer of financial books, you obviously encounter lots of people and get to see how their work life goes and how they save money. Is it pretty common that people continue to work or make money after enough? And why do they do that? Sure. It's super common. And there's a number of different reasons. I think for some people, it's the very basic reason that they they literally don't know that they have enough. So they keep working <laughs> until until it's obvious to them without any you know financial background that yes, this is definitely clearly enough. So that's one reason. Another reason is just like we talked about some people who 
might be aware that the financial rules of thumb or financial planning software would say that they could retire, they still don't feel like they can. They're still scared. And so that's another reason. Then there's just people who fully recognize that they could retire. There's no fear, but they just want to keep working because it gives their life meaning. And so there's plenty of different reasons why a person might retire or might not retire, even though they're financially at the point where they they could. I've always, when I looked at my own trajectory, justified it by, I like my work, so I feel like doing my work is purposeful. But then I justified the extra money by saying that I could take like an extra vacation, right? Or I could fly first class as opposed to flying coach. What we're going to be talking about and what you talk about in your book is this idea of what you do when you have more money than you're going to need, right? For your foreseeable future. Let's start with first and foremost, Bill Perkins wrote a book called Die With Zero, right? This idea of trying to spend through your money by the time you reach the end, or at least you know, being generous and using your money generously earlier on in life. Do you feel like a lot of people are living that way or are a lot of people accumulating and holding on to more than they're going to need? I I don't see anybody living that way. <laughs> no I, one? I, I'm, I'm, at least in, in my professional work, I don't see anybody doing that. Almost everybody is spending at a very low rate that is likely to result in a significant some left over at the time of death. And there's good reasons for that. Um, there's the uncertainty and in investment returns that we talked about. There's also just the fact that we don't know how long we're going to live, right? No matter how old you are, you still don't know how long you have left. Then there's the fact that we don't know what expenses we'll have. And so when we talk about retirement planning, most of the research says, you know, there's these different strategies that we're going to spend this percent per year, or this many dollars per year. And that's all well and good, but in real life, sometimes, you know, perhaps your spending strategy that you've selected calls for you to spend, you know, three and a half percent of the portfolio this year, but you just received a diagnosis that says you mean that you're going to need a surgery and then chemo. And that's going to mean you're spending six and a half percent instead of three and a half percent. And you're going to do it anyway, because that's insane not to. We build wiggle room in, right? It's, it's, it's nice to use a low spending rate at the base level so that if or when something like that does happen, it doesn't just completely blow everything up. So starting with these low spending rates, in case all of these different things happen, usually makes sense. But the flip side of it is that usually all of those bad things don't happen. Right? You don't, most of the time, your most likely outcome is that you don't live to age 105 in a nursing home and you probably don't have terrible investment returns. And so if you develop a plan that still works, even if those bad outcomes occur, well, then when those bad outcomes don't occur, you're going to have money left over. Help me understand this, because if you listen to the rhetoric about America in general and how people deal with money, what you're led to believe is most people are overspending on a regular basis. When you just said this, you said, no, look, most of the people I deal with probably have accumulated more money than they're ever going to be able to spend. A lot of people are actually dying with excess money. How does that make sense? Is it that you're just seeing a small percentage of the population or is it the kind of people who end up going to a CPA or probably the ones who are planning better? What? How does this work? Because that doesn't sound like what I hear when you listen to the TV and radio. Sure. There's absolutely a selection bias going on. The people who hire a CPA for tax planning are probably people who had above average incomes, above average savings rates, and they're 
interested in their finances. So yes, there's there's definitely a selection bias here. The, the, the average person I'm seeing is not the average person in the American population. Do you think there's a criticism to be leveled here, right? So it's really easy to criticize people who aren't accumulating enough and saying you have to save more, you have to earn more, all the things we tell people who complain that they don't have enough money to live their lives. But is there a criticism to be then leveled at the other side to these kind of people that we're interacting with or the people you're seeing and saying, well, maybe you really should be reading Bill Perkins' book. You know, maybe you should be thinking about spending more. I think the message, maybe you should be thinking about spending more is, is a good message for a lot of these people. I'm not sure I would call that a criticism. I think that's, you know, just useful guidance. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily saying, Hey, you're, you know, you're doing something wrong. Just, Hey, this is a thing that you should consider. You should be thinking about spending more. I think that's a good place to start. And and first and foremost, do you find that people who are coming to you who have accumulated a lot have trouble like me spending it? Like I have trouble spending, even though mentally I can say, okay, this is a thousandth of my portfolio. I can spend this and it's not going to change anything, but that doesn't necessarily mean it internally feels good. Yeah, absolutely. That's super normal. That's what I see. I mean, not with every single person, but certainly a whole lot of people. And I think it's just because we actively build habits, you know, on purpose in many cases, actively build habits over decades in order to achieve this financial goal of, you know, I've got enough to retire, enough to be financially independent. And those habits that you've developed are now standing precisely in the way of of spending from this portfolio that you've accumulated. So let's focus then on this subset of people, because a lot of those are the same kind of people who are listening to this podcast right now. Let's talk about some good ways to maybe spend more. First and foremost, you talk a little bit about in the book, like what types of spending are fruitful. So if we're going to learn how to spend, what types of things feel good to spend on? Sure, exactly. Because it's important, you know, the point isn't just spend more money for the sake of spending money. The point is spend more money with the goal of it improving your happiness and your well-being. There's a lot of research on this topic, and a lot of people have probably run into the conclusion before that comes out of a lot of that research, which is that spending on experiences tends to result in a greater increase in happiness than spending on physical things. It's not always the case. It's not always the case for every person, but that's a generally good conclusion, something we usually see. So spending on a vacation, for instance, as opposed to a, a you know fancier car. The other thing is that spending in ways that improve a social connection or, or help you make new social connections is tremendously beneficial from a you know, happiness point of view, because there's a ton of research showing that social connections are critical to you know mental health and well-being. And so when you put those two things together, the most obvious conclusion is that spending on experiences with people you like is probably a great way to spend money. So that could be going on a vacation with family or loved ones or a good friend, or it could be taking a class with somebody you, you like or guided experiences. I talk about my parents, for instance, have done architecture tours in various cities, and they think that's fascinating, even though that's not either one of their background at all. They just they think it's great. Guided hikes rock climbs, whatever, whatever might sound interesting to you, guided experiences with somebody who you care about can be a tremendously fulfilling way to spend dollars. You get to a point in the book where you talk about 
Understanding what's fruitful spending can obviously help us do a little bit more of that and enjoy money now while we're alive, while we have it. But there's a subset of people that this still causes a huge amount of anxiety. You talk a little bit about getting actually psychological counseling. Tell me how you know when it's like, okay, this is abnormal. I need extra help. I'm having so much anxiety about spending this money. I have all this money in the bank. I'm not using it to make myself happy. How do you know when it's like, okay, now I have to take the next step? Yeah, that's a a very difficult question. And of course, again, I'm a CPA. I'm not a mental health (laughs) professional. So I'm without a doubt, I'm not the best person. So, you know, take my answer for what it's worth. But I would say that if if you can tell that you're experiencing anxiety about money and you can tell that there isn't a compelling financial reason for that anxiety, like you can tell, like with whatever knowledge you have, you know that there's very little financial risk in your life, but you're still feeling anxiety. Like if, if you yourself can make both of those determinations, then I think there's a good chance that you know, meeting with a you know mental health professional is likely to be advantageous. And of course, we have this huge stigma about mental health care, even still, even though it's less than it was many years ago, but it's still there. And this is funny because almost every time I talk to somebody about the book, this is the one thing that they talk about, even though it's just a tiny little part of the book, because we don't talk about it. It's not a thing that we talk about in the world of financial planning that, you know, by the way, mental health is a piece of this, but it is. And that could be some of the very best money that you spend. It's not that expensive, frankly. A, a few sessions with the mental health care professional is not outrageously expensive, and it can have a very significant positive result and positive impact on your well-being. It's interesting as you talk about this stigma, because I'm thinking about, we don't talk about much money much, and therefore going to someone like a therapist could be really helpful, give you a chance to really talk about these things. How about talking with our spouses and our children? Do you find that people are having these conversations with their families? Are they talking about, oh, we have lots of money in the bank. What should we do with that? Especially like with kids. Do people talk to them? Are you expecting to get an inheritance? Right. I, I, From what I see, most people are talking about it with their spouse. That's an ongoing conversation, certainly in most of the households that I encounter, either professionally or in my personal life. It's much less common for people to be having these discussions with their kids or grandkids. And I, I get that. Right? There's a lot of fear about having that conversation because it feels private, right? Our, our finances feel private. And they're not private from your spouse because you've been sharing that information all along and you know partnering in that way even if you don't combine finances you're probably at least talking about it but for most of your life you're really not talking about this with your kids you're not giving them this any sort of clear window into the details of your financial situation also i think a lot of people are apprehensive about possible negative outcomes from having a conversation about that they're worried that the kids will you know, start asking for money right now, even though they might not be comfortable doing that, or the kids will have disagreements about if the parents, you know, the household we're, we're talking about here, if they explain to the kids that this is our estate plan, and, you know, it's divvied up like this, they're worried that there might be some disagreements about that. And, and that all makes sense. I see why those concerns are there. One thing that I often point out to people is that in a lot of cases, those outcomes that you're concerned about 
they're going to happen anyway, even if you don't have this conversation. And in fact, they might be much worse, right? If you expect there to be some sort of disagreement among your kids with regard to how the estate is you know, split up, waiting, you know, not talking about that in advance, and then having that disagreement happen when you're not there, that's, that's just worse, right? It's going to take this argument, and there's no mediator, there's no one there to, you know, smooth things over or explain why you made this decision. And so any, you know, resentment, it's more likely to be permanent, and, you know, much more damaging in that sort of situation. As we've talked about, there is a definite set of the population who's going to accumulate more than they need and probably die with extra money. We also kind of said most people don't do the Bill Perkins thing, right? And die with zero. I know it sounds obvious, but I don't think we often say it this clearly. In your book, it makes it pretty clear the really two things that happen to your money once you die, right? There's only two things. What are those two things? Yeah, it's either it goes to a person, you know, your kids, grandkids, a friend or whoever it is, or you leave it to a charity. Those are the only choices. And even to back up a step, there's only three things that happen through our whole lives with money. Either, you know, bucket number one is we spend our money, right? And that includes discretionary spending and non-discretionary spending as well as taxes. Uh, You know, bucket number two is you give it to a person or you leave it to a person at your death. And bucket number three is you give it to a charity or leave it to a charity at your death. Every dollar that you ever accumulate ends up in one of those three buckets, no matter what. So you talk about this quite a bit in the book. Is there any rule that we have to leave our kids anything or should we? And if we are, how do we figure out how much to leave them and in what manner? Because it's kind of complicated, right? Yeah, it can be. And the default answer that most people I encounter, this is their first answer, is that if you've got three kids, for instance, it goes one third to each kid. That's intuitive. It's a straightforward answer. You can most people just feel good about that right away. And it's it's obvious that that's, you know, the first approach that most people take. Um, I also find, though, that when people spend more time really thinking about their values and and life goals, they often will shift somewhat from that. And it's not that, oh, we're going to completely write the kids out of the will and instead it's going to be whoever else. But often they realize that there's other things in their life that have a lot of meaning. Their kids, certainly, that's a piece of it, but it's it's more than that. There's usually causes or nonprofit organizations that they really, really care about. And so they often end up you know scaling back the amount that goes to the kids and scaling up the amount that goes to one or more nonprofit organizations. There's two reasons why that often happens as people reevaluate later in life. Number one is just because, again, the first time you fill out a beneficiary designation on your IRA, it's so easy to just put down your kids, right? So it's the obvious answer. And number two is the simple fact that the later in life you're thinking about this, the later in life your kids are. And the more likely it is that they're already financially not necessarily financially independent and retired, but financially secure. They don't need a a big inheritance. And so once people realize that, that often frees them up, you know, emotionally to feel like they don't have to leave all of it to the kids. Because if, you know, if you're in your 20s and you've got very young minor children, yes, you're probably leaving it all to the kids. But if your kids are in their 40s, it feels very different. 
you, it, there doesn't feel like the same sense of obligation that it all has to go to them because they've got their own careers. They've got their own savings. Then you usually do most of the time want to leave some to them, maybe even most to them, but it doesn't feel the same way as it does when, you know, when they're dependent on you for the money. We are talking to Mike Piper. He's the author of several books, as well as the popular blog, ObliviousInvestor.com. And we are talking about what happens when you've accumulated more than enough. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenues, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Mike Piper. His most recent book is titled More Than Enough, A Brief Guide to the Questions That Arise After Realizing That You Have More Than You Need. Mike, we've been talking about what happens to your money after you die, but part of the purpose of this, some of it is spending today. But let's talk about how you manage your money once you realize you have more than enough. First and foremost, you talked about leaving money for your children or leaving money to charities. Do we have to wait till we've died to do that? Is there some benefit in starting that now while we're still here? Sure. There's a significant tax benefit uh, making donations during your life. There's less tax benefit to gifting during your life, a gifting in the sense of gifting to individuals. But as far as donations during lifetime, there's two primary things that you can do that make that are particularly advantageous from a tax point of view. Number one is any donating of appreciated securities. So anything that you own in a regular tax brokerage account that has gone up in value when you donate it to charity, as long as you have owned this investment for longer than one year, then you get a deduction 
for the current market value of the asset. And you don't have to pay any tax on the appreciation. So it's it's basically, it's better than just donating cash. Because if you donate cash, you got a deduction for the market value of the cash, which is you know just the dollar amount. But when you're donating appreciated securities, you also get to avoid tax on that appreciation. The other big thing, and this is actually even better, most cases for people to whom it applies, is once you reach age 70 and a half, you can use what's called a qualified charitable distribution, a QCD. And what that is, is when you have money come out of your traditional IRA, and one note here is that it's important that it it has to be a traditional IRA, a 401k or 403b doesn't count. So when you have money come out of a traditional IRA and it goes directly to a nonprofit organization, then two things happen. Number one is that this distribution is excluded from your taxable income, whereas generally when money comes out of a traditional IRA, it's included in your taxable income. So in this case, it is not. And thing number two that happens is that this counts towards your RMD for a given year. So once you have to start taking required minimum distributions, if you're in a position such that you don't actually need that full distribution for your living expenses, this is basically the most tax efficient thing that you can do with it is have it, you know, to the extent that you don't need those dollars for spending, you can direct them directly towards the nonprofit as a qualified charitable distribution. And it's going to give you some significant tax savings. So we've been talking about spending. Let's talk a little about investing. You use this quote in your book from William Bernstein, something to the effect of when you've won the game, you should stop playing. Let's talk about how investing changes once you're looking and saying, boy, I've probably accumulated more than enough. How should you invest? Yeah, that's a tricky question in some ways because there's the initial stage where when you've reached enough, and that's what you know the Bill Bernstein quote, it's when you've won the game, stop playing. So it's if you've reached a level of assets such that you can achieve your goals, you've reached financial independence, but you're still in a place where if things went poorly, then you would not be able to satisfy your goals. Well, then it makes sense to use something very safe, a, a tips ladder, for instance. So tips, treasury, inflation, protected securities, they're inflation adjusted bonds. And so that a ladder of them is basically the safest way to guarantee that you'll have a certain amount of spending power available every year. So that's when you're at this the range where you have enough to meet your goals, but you're still at risk of not having enough if things go poorly. Once you, once or if you reach a point where it's clear that you have more than enough, and even if you had very poor investment returns, you would still, your living expenses would still be satisfied and your goals would still be satisfied. And then at that point, the prior point no longer applies. You don't need to scale your risk way down. You can if you want to, because you don't need high investment returns. So if you feel better having a low-risk portfolio, you can do that. But anything all the way to the very opposite end of the spectrum can make sense as well. You can say, I'm going to have, you know, for instance, a 100% stock portfolio might not be completely insane if the volatility really has no harm to you and you are essentially thinking of this portfolio as overwhelmingly going to other parties at a later time, whether it's your kids, grandkids, or charity, or whoever. And so they're thinking about um, the relevant time frame for those other parties, kids and grandkids, is a much longer time frame. So more aggressive allocation can make a lot of sense if you want to. So basically, 
the key takeaway is that once you reach a point where you have more than enough and you know it, almost anywhere on the risk spectrum can make sense. Very conservative, very aggressive, or anywhere in between. You've got freedom to choose and any of them can make sense. I like the way you stated in the book, when you're talking about that second situation where even poor returns, you would be fine. You start telling us to look at it almost as an endowment, right? What you're doing is this is an endowment to your children or charities, to whoever that's going to be too. And endowments tend to look for high returns over long periods of time, right? So for them, it makes sense for them to risk stratify. And for maybe many people who are finding themselves in this position where they have more than enough, and especially for those who have more than enough and are also continuing to work or have some active income, so they're drawing down very little, investing aggressively actually make more might make more sense. Maybe William Bernstein isn't exactly right <laughs> in that situation. I'm unlikely to disagree with, with Bill Bernstein, <laughs> but I think, yeah, putting a caveat on, on that statement is, is helpful. So accumulating money is one thing, protecting money or at least managing it both in life and maybe after life is also important. I feel like whenever we talk about estate planning, people get caught up on this issue of trusts. And so it's like this thing that a lot of people think they need or is important, but most people don't understand them. There are really three big reasons for you to consider a trust. Can you Tell us a little bit about why that should be part of our estate planning, especially when you're at this point of possibly enough or more than enough. Sure. There's, yeah, like you said, an assortment of reasons why someone might consider a trust. And there are different trusts for different purposes. So that's another important thing to understand. And sorry, another caveat here is that, and all of this varies based on the state that you live in. So it's important to you know, speak with an attorney in your state who has the expertise that's relevant. But broadly speaking, one primary reason why a trust might be helpful is that it allows you to exert some level of control over these assets after you die or after you become incapacitated. That general line of thinking can apply to any number of different life circumstances. So one common one is if you have one of your kids to whom you would plan to leave assets, if for one reason or another, you can't leave assets directly to them, either because, for instance, they're disabled, or you just don't trust that they would make good decisions with those assets, then you can leave the assets to a trust. And a trustee, you would name a trustee in the, in the trust document to manage those assets and make the relevant financial decisions for the benefit of your child to whom you're trying to, for whom you're trying to provide. Another common one is blended families. So people, you know, you've got two people who are married and they've each been married before and they each have kids from that prior marriage. Uh, a concern that comes up a lot of times is a worry that whoever dies first, the other spouse, if they just get all of the assets, they'll disinherit the, the first decedent's children, basically. And so a trust is a way that you could you know, allow your surviving spouse to have income from the assets while they're still alive. And that's in the case that you die first, your surviving spouse would still have income from the assets, for instance. And then after they die, the remainder of the assets would go to your own kids, something like that. So there's a whole range of life circumstances where this general concept of wanting to exert some control over assets after your death might be useful. Trusts can also be useful as a tax planning tool. 
in especially in cases where we're concerned about an estate tax. These days, the federal estate tax, the exemption amount is high enough that it doesn't affect very many households, at least as a percentage. But there's also some states that have an estate tax where in some cases, the threshold is is much lower, as low as $1 million. So that obviously catches a much higher percentage of people. And so trusts can be useful there. And the ways in which they can be useful are, again, varied and can get pretty complicated. So again, it's it's worth speaking with an attorney, basically. Yeah, the one level, and, and I might be getting this wrong, so you can certainly correct me. I never quite understood the tax benefits. And actually reading your book helped me a little bit in the sense that the difference between a revocable and an irrevocable trust. So a lot of times Mm -hmm. we do these revocable trusts, especially if we're trying to avoid probate, which is kind of the third thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But an irrevocable trust means that you put assets in there and you, those assets can be for instance, for your own benefit or for the benefit of someone else. But when it's, it's in the irrevocable trust, it is no longer in a sense owned by you anymore. And therefore you can get some of those tax benefits and yet still benefit from the money. And then once you pass away, basically the trust can dictate what happens with the money after that. And and you might have some tax benefits with a step-up basis and those type of things. But the difference is between a revocable and irrevocable. The problem with irrevocable trust is once you put it in there, it's out of your hands. You've made the decision, but you can still benefit from those assets even when they're in the irrevocable trust. Right. Yeah, exactly. The The irrevocable status is is not in itself helpful. It's it's clearly detrimental. You now have less flexibility. But by virtue of being an irrevocable trust, there can be some tax benefits. There can also be some asset protection benefits, basically. Got it. And so that was the second. So the, the first big point was you can use trust to dictate exactly what happens to your money after you die, which family members it goes to, or to protect family members, or to have a trustee disperse money in such a way to protect a family member. So that was kind of the first thing trust do. The second thing trust do is we were talking about is the difference between revocable, irrevocable, and the tax benefits you can get from it. And then the last one, which I briefly mentioned, is this idea of avoiding probate. What the heck is probate and why are we all so scared of it? (laughs) Yeah, probate is the process of administering an estate. So it's basically a person has died and now the representative of the estate. So that could be an executor or an administrator. And that person has to essentially collect all of the assets of the estate, account for all of the liabilities of the estate, pay those off to the extent that the assets of the estate can pay them off, and then distribute the remaining assets accordingly. The reasons people like to try to avoid that, there's a few reasons. Number one is that in some cases, it's expensive. In some states, it there's just fees that go along with probate. And so avoiding it can result in cost savings. That's fairly straightforward. But again, it varies from one location to another. So do your research to determine whether that's relevant to you or not. Another reason is simply that it's a hassle, right? It's this whole administrative process involving a court, or at least it can be. There's also simplified versions of probate, which again, varies by based on where you live. But it can be a hassle. And in some cases, a trust can significantly reduce the amount of hassle involved. And the third reason is privacy. Probate proceedings are public. So if you're concerned about that, then that's an advantage of a trust because funding a trust with assets and then you know having those assets ultimately be distributed to one or more beneficiaries is uh, not public information that's private. 
So I want to spend just a few moments at the end of our discussion about asset protection, maybe something we don't talk enough about. What are some simple ways to protect your assets once you get to that enough place? Sure. So asset protection is the the concept of you're concerned about lawsuits, basically. And um, the first thing, and I mentioned this in the book, is not a financial strategy. It's just what are things that you can do in your life to reduce the actual risk to which you're exposed? And the one example in the book that I give, because this is such a real life example that applies to so many households, is if you have a young driver in your household, that is a significant risk. And even if they're responsible, just because, of course, a new driver has only accumulated a certain amount of experience and skills and paying for additional professional instruction beyond what they receive through school, if they receive that through school or whatever might be mandated where you live can significantly reduce the risk involved. And this is, you know, we're not just talking financial risk. This is risk to their well-being and anyone else in the car or around them. And so that sort of thing can be extremely valuable. And of course, whatever other risks are in your life is going to vary from one household to another. But it's worth taking some time to think about that and just see whether there might be obvious and straightforward ways to actually reduce the risk in your life. But beyond that, when we talk about actual financial strategies, there's Insurance, obviously. So making sure that you have the maximum coverage limits on your uh, various liability policies. And then also you can get an umbrella policy. There's asset protection from types of accounts. So 401k plans, for instance, and 403b plans, they have asset protection. And then IRAs have a level of asset protection as well, but it varies by state. So it's important to find out what the threshold is in your state. In some states, there's no threshold. They have unlimited asset protection. So there's a range of different things. Trusts also, irrevocable trusts. Again, so here's one of those examples where irrevocable versus revocable. Irrevocable trusts, any assets in them will generally not be accessible to somebody who is suing you. But you have to make sure that you didn't put them into the irrevocable trust knowing that you might get sued because the court system will see right through that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's called a fraudulent conveyance. And right, if you already know, you know, someone in your household, again, same example, was just in a car accident and the other party was injured and you're expecting a lawsuit pretty soon. Yeah, if you go set up an irrevocable trust and put some money into it, the courts exactly, they'll see right through that. That's not gonna, it's not gonna work. One other last question I think was really, really instructive in the book is this idea of Roth versus non-Roth IRAs. So as we get older, if we have a lot of money in our 401k space or in our traditional IRA space, we at some point have the option or any time in life, we have the option of trying to convert some of this to the Roth IRA space. And that's a decision that often people make when they're thinking about spending down for themselves. But you go a step further and say, well, whether you put something in a Roth or leave it in a traditional, if you have more than enough, has another layer of importance. It has a layer of importance when it comes to what happens to your money after you die. Explain how we go about making that decision, Roth versus non-Roth, when we're talking about money that probably won't be for us, but will yeah. be for future either generations or charities. Yeah, absolutely. That's important. So- there's a lot going on with the Roth conversion, but one of the most critical factors in whether it makes sense to do a conversion now or not is the question of what tax rate would you pay on the conversion today when you do the conversion? And how does that compare to the tax rate that would be paid on these dollars later whenever they come out of the account later 
if you don't convert them. And so in the basic scenario that we usually talk about, it's what's your tax rate now and how does that compare to your tax rate later in retirement? But just like you said, when there's a good likelihood that a significant part of these assets are still going to be remaining upon your death, now that future tax rate that we're comparing it to is the tax rate of whoever is going to be inheriting these assets. So it could be your kids or grandkids tax rate, or it could be a charity's tax rate, which is zero. And so what you're planning on doing with these assets makes a huge difference because if you're planning on leaving it all to charity, well, a Roth conversion makes no sense because why would you pay tax now to avoid a 0% tax rate later? Conversely, if all of your assets are going to your one child and that child is in a very high earning career and you have a very significant you know, tax deferred balance such that they'd be taking large distributions, presumably at a very high tax rate, then Roth conversions suddenly become much more appealing. So I said I was going to begin this conversation with a doozy. Wrapping up, I want to end with a doozy too. So you help lots of people who get to this point, as we said, where they're like in a unique situation, they actually have more than enough and they have to decide what to do. These are people who have enough money. Do you find that these people in general are happier? Like, does having enough money or having more than enough, is that generally associated with being happier for the rest of their lives? That is a great question. I would say when people recognize that they have more than enough, I I do think that they're happier than the average person, which is not to say that they're just, you know, permanently happy all the time because no one's, you know, everybody's human. But when people recognize that, I think on average, they're happier because there's less stress. Now, again, a, a key point here is that we're talking about somebody who not only has more than enough, but they recognize that they have more than enough because there's so many people who, just like we talked about at the beginning, are in that situation financially, but they're still experiencing a ton of stress and anxiety because they don't realize that they're in that situation. And so for people who actually have have recognized and accepted the fact that yeah, there's very little financial risk remaining in their lives. I think that that does lead to greater happiness. But of course, it is just one one piece in a large, large picture of what makes a person happy. Well, Mike Piper, I wanted to thank you for coming on this show. What I really take from this conversation is the kind of people who listen to podcasts, the kind of people who go to CPAs regularly, the kind of people who end up thinking about money a lot, many of them are going to have more than enough at some point in their lives. And so it makes a lot of sense to start thinking about, A, how are you going to spend money on the things that are important to you? B, how are you going to protect the assets you have already and invest wisely even after you have more than enough? And last but not least, it makes sense to be thoughtful about how we want to leave those assets either to people or charities in the future. And we can do things now to make that money go further and have more of an impact. I want to end this episode the way I end it every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and how we can get in touch with you. First and foremost, if we are interested in your book, More Than Enough, a brief guide to the questions that arise after realizing that you have more than you need, what's the best way to get it? Just find it on Amazon is the best way to get it. Amazon, look up more than enough or Mike Piper. And Mike, specifically, if people have questions for you or want to know more about your services, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, you can email me, Mike at obliviousinvestor.com. Again, obliviousinvestor.com is my blog. You'll find 
I don't know, more than a thousand articles there. I've been writing there since 2008. So a lot of the topics that we've talked about today, there's articles on the on the blog about those as well. So you can look for those. Um, that's the best way to reach me though, email. Mike Piper, I really enjoyed your book more than enough. Thank you for coming on Earn and Invest today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. In today's episode with Mike Piper, we ask an interesting question. What do you do when you have more than enough? I think it's a two-part question. One is, how do you even figure out if you have more than enough? And we pose this to Mike Piper, and you guys have heard us talk about safe withdrawal rates before in the past. This idea that there's a way we can use some economic number to calculate what enough money looks like. That's why we develop rules of thumb, like the 4% rule of thumb. They sound great, But the problem when it comes to enough money is there is a disconnect between mathematically what looks like enough money and then the reality of the uncertainty of the future. No matter how well we calculate, we don't know what's going to happen in our future. We don't know what kind of health crisis we're going to have. We don't know whether we're going to need long-term care and maybe we'll have to pay for a nursing home or assisted living We don't know what's going to happen with the stock market, and maybe we could have unprecedented losses over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. Because there's so much unknown, figuring out enough is all but impossible. And that's just when it comes to money. Then there's this idea of what is enough life? Once you have the money thing figured out and you have enough money to support those things you want to do in life... What's such a thing as enough achievement or enough accomplishments or enough friends or enough love or having enough experiences? I sometimes think I have an unquenchable thirst. And every time I reach a place where I think I have enough, regardless of its money or experiences or love or life or whatever it is, I feel satiated and full briefly. And then I'm already thinking about the next thing over and over again. What is enough? It's a very difficult question to answer. And I don't know if exactly I can pin it down. If I can say that this is what enough looks like in my life, much less in yours or anyone else's. This was a big weekend in the Grummet family household My son Cameron graduated high school this weekend. He is going to be going to college next year. He's leaving the house. He'll be about a three and a half hour drive. And it makes me think about a lot of these things that I contemplate on the podcast. I can talk about enough money. I can talk about enough life. I can talk about enough achievements. Lately, I've been thinking about enough time. Enough time with a son who, once he leaves my door will never return exactly the same again, probably never live with me again, at least not full-time. The time I've had with my son is mostly gone. Maybe 80% of the time I'll spend with him in a lifetime is passing right now in front of my eyes. It's a provocative question. I don't know what enough money is. I don't know what enough life is. 
I guess my best answer is that whatever we do with our money and finances, we want to make sure it supports this idea that we can be present and here and involved in those important moments. For me, this weekend, it was going to my son's graduation. Who knows what it'll be for you? But there's these moments in our lives and they pass, these seasons that are a part of our life, and they come and they go. And maybe maybe that's enough. Maybe abundance is being present for those seasons in your life. Having enough time, energy, love, capability to be there for your loved ones, to experience those big things, to shoot for the stars on something that's really important for you, and maybe succeed, and maybe not. That's my best answer. That's what enough feels like. There's monetarily enough, and then there's enough in everything else. And I'm hoping, hoping upon hope, that this podcast helps you contemplate, because maybe my version of enough is not the same as yours. Maybe enough for you is something completely different. But if we don't start thinking about it, I don't know if we ever will. And our lives are finite, and one day we'll reach the end. And if we didn't work some of these things out then, unfortunately, I think, we'll regret it. Awesome. I keep things running just for a few minutes. Um, just to catch our after show. Thanks also for mentioning my book in your book. Like that was, that's how kind of Chris Mamula wrote me. He's like, oh, by the way, Mike Piper, you know, briefly talked about your book in, in the conclusion of his. And I just, you know, that's awesome and really, really cool. Um, and I think, you know, our books touch on some similar ideas, but from very different directions. Exactly. Very different directions, right? But similar ideas. Yeah, your book was excellent. I read it um, last October. October, I guess, and very, very heavily highlighted. Lots of useful, <laughs> useful guidance for the people I'm working with, as well as just our own personal life. Myself, we meaning myself and my spouse. Yeah. I'm always, you know, it's that idea of we spend so much time thinking about how to have enough. What happens when we get there? Um, and that was something I certainly struggled with, as you could tell from reading the book in my own life. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of people in that space of kind of like, okay, now what? And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense to be real thoughtful about it. Yeah. There's not, not easy answers either. There just aren't. Is there anything in the book that we didn't talk about? This is a chance just because people hear the after show, anything that you wanted to highlight or things that you thought we didn't cover? Cause obviously I had to jump here and there just to cover some key, sure. key aspects. Yeah, I think we hit hit all the biggest things. I mean, there's, you know, nitty gritty details on various tax things. But as far as all the biggest topics, I think we covered it. Now, as I was talking to you about before the show, you are a voracious writer. Are you already working on your next book or series of books? Uh, no, right now, the writing work is updating other books. That's one of the unfortunate parts of writing books about taxes is that you have to update them regularly. I was about to say, how often do you have to actually go through and start updating? Yeah, for a lot of the books, it's annually. Uh, for some of the books, I let it go every two to three years. It kind of, it, and then for some of them, it's also largely 
as needed, right? Uh, the Social Security book, for instance, required two editions in the same year because once it just was at a regular update at the beginning of the year and then later in the year, they passed legislation that dramatically changed all the rules. So that year got two editions. How... um. How much of this, how much research time do you spend on kind of learning the newest laws? I know because of your practice, you must be pretty up to date, but do you end up spending lots of time on continuing education because of the stuff, as you said, changes fairly yeah, often? It's it's without a doubt one of the, the biggest things that I spend time on over the course of the year is um, fact checking. So as far as the books, literally just going you know paragraph by paragraph, looking at the recent legislation and reading the actual text of the legislation and text of the internal revenue code and, and just fact checking, which well, is not the most thrilling thing. In the I world. can certainly tell you as a reader, it's really awesome to know that you're kind of continuously updating the books because as you said, they can, they can be out of date within a year or two. Yeah, exactly. Do you, I just, cause I don't understand anything about this process. People who've bought your book, obviously hardcover, there's nothing you can do about it. You update it, you update it. If you have like a Kindle version, is there an updating function? I don't even know about that. Like, can you update your current edition? The, you can. The unfortunate reality is um, Amazon is really, as a publishing platform at least, really, really set up for fiction publishers, which makes sense because there's so many more units of fiction yeah. books that sell every day than nonfiction. Um, so there is a way to do that. The problem is that for that to work, you can't use a new ISBN for the book. You just have to update the existing book. Oh, and got it. that wouldn't be a problem aside from the fact that Amazon doesn't let you then update the publication date. So eventually you have a book with 2023 information and it has a 2016 publication date and yeah. nobody wants to and buy no a tax book it. from yep. 2016. Yeah. Got it. Uh, yeah, clunky, but oh yeah. Well. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.